It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Rome, open city, is over. We mustn't be afraid now or in the future, because we're on the just path. Marcello, devi andare a Don Pietro, sbrigate. Attenti, Don Pietro! Bisogna stringere un blocco compatto contro il comune nemico. Non dubitate, non mi sfuggirà. Non è per sfiducia nei vostri sistemi, ma preferisco fare da me. Ho preparato la tua tesi, Giovanni e Pisco. Andy, we're, we're talking about this is the last thing in this little in our in our award series here for screenplay adapted. Our final episode in this series, 1947 Academy Award nominees for best writing comma screenplay which is what they called essentially adapted screenplay 
nominees at the time. And this is the fifth of our five nominees. So that means this episode we'll also be talking a little bit about uh, about the awards and uh, perhaps what we would have liked to have seen there. Yes, for sure. And we are talking about Rome, Open City. In the scope of adaptations, we've kind of talked about this with each of these so far. From what I could tell, this is a very frustrating one. It's based on something called Stories of Yesteryear by Sergio Amide and Alberto Consiglio, both of whom also worked on the screenplay with uh, Federico Fellini and Roberto Rossellini. For the life of me, I tried finding information about this book. I could find next to nothing. The only thing that I found was, and again, this was like, it wasn't even like, an official write-up or anything. It was just like a brief paragraph that basically made it sound like this was a series of stories of people who had survived in Rome through the end of the uh, era of Mussolini and through this period of the Nazi ruling for the about nine-month period that the Nazis held it before uh, it was liberated. And that's essentially kind of what it was. It was just a series of stories of people who had survived. And so what it sounds like is they took that and pulled a number of different characters, including the the priest, Don Pietro, uh, who's very prominent in this, and kind of wrapped this story around a number of them, tying them all together. And that's essentially what we get. I wish that I could have found more information about it, but that's what it sounds like it was based on. Uh, from a series of stories like that into something like this, do you feel like it's kind of capturing the essence of a number of different lives in this period of occupation? I guess. Honestly, though, as I started watching this, I, m- my feeling was, is, was this a big enough movie? for the story stories they were trying to tell. Um, I, it's a good movie, and I in, enjoyed my time with it. I thought it was a, a bit more middle of the road until we get into the third act and and start seeing just how gruesome it, it can be. And then this is one of those movies that is made vastly better by learning more about how it was made and uh, when it was made, like context is everything. And, um, you know, the work that they had to go through to get this movie made in a really sort of contentious uh, time and environment, um, I I think is makes this movie pretty special. So I I look at each of these characters and I felt like by the time the movie resolves, yeah, they, they have a hard time of it. But did I feel complete? After watching each of their stories, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. I don't know that there was quite enough. I wanted this to be more epic as a film. And and I think because I think it's an interesting story and it's from an interesting perspective inside of Italy. You know, that's interesting. I could certainly have continued watching this had the stories, had we had more stories and we're following more people and kind of doing a more full scope on a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, I feel like I get everything I need for each of these characters and their lives. And you really get a sense of just the the tragic way every story thread ends in this period. Like, I don't know if there is a single story that we're really following that ends in a positive light. And it, oh, no. it, just, yeah, it, that's it true. makes it incredibly tragic to kind of watch in so many different ways, how people's lives are destroyed. And, you know, what's interesting is, I, you know, part of me was like, what does the title actually mean? I'm like, I'm not sure what Rome Open City means. 
So I was uh, looking it up. Open City describes a city that has been declared undefended and not subject to military defense or resistance. At this point in time, the Italian government had declared Rome an open city, saying it would not be defended against invading German forces. The idea is to protect the civilians to avoid any destruction, any loss of life, because they're saying our military is not going to stop you. So just leave everybody alone, essentially. But what happens is that when the Nazis are in there, they're occupying it and they are still taking people in the middle of the night. It still is very difficult for people to get food. You know, there are curfews and people have to be very careful about what they do and what they say and who they talk to and where they go. And so it creates this situation of people who are in war, but are not being protected in any way. And so that's essentially this period of time that we're in this nine month period when Rome is and I say that, I mean, the, the story takes place over just a couple of days, but the Nazis held Rome for nine months before it was liberated after the fall of Mussolini. And that's kind of, um, we're kind of like right toward the very end of that as it's getting close to being liberated. Yeah, because wasn't it like the next day in the film that was like the next day the Germans were going to officially take control of the city? Not the Germans. Or was that 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 was the Italians? They, yeah, they were. They were. I don't know because it felt like there was something that was happening the following day. Like everything was a big deal. They were trying to wrap everything. My understanding, and this, you know, I could be wrong, but they were trying to wrap everything up because uh, the Germans were trying to wrap everything up because they knew that Rome was soon to be liberated. That they were going to be turning it back over to the uh, the Allies. Right, and so. That that put our ticking clock on this couple of days that we we had, and also it and, and I don't know, as as a non clearly non historian of this period, it was interesting to me because the setting of open city did that imply that there was more of a of a sort of ecosystem of espionage in an open city than there would be in a contested city? Did that make it easier for these people to? hide messages and get messages to different areas because it felt a little bit like that's that's the other thing that they felt like was going to end was their ability to move you know even somewhat freely and exchange massive amounts of of money in books with a priest um, would be harder starting after the liberation because there'd be an active fight i didn't think that i mean these people are the people who are like essentially on the side of the allies they're wanting to be exactly saved so i don't think it's going to be making it harder necessarily well because then there's a then there's a war in their city and it it just felt like to me like oh okay so we know that nobody's going to be actively fighting can we can we be sneakier can we be sneakier in an open city than in a contested city i don't know i i'm honestly just speculating like i i don't know I guess I'm not really sure. I don't know exactly. Yeah. Um, I found myself thinking about that. Like part part of it was in the movie, like leading to all of the implications of the ticking clock and what led to the final interrogations and why the Germans were so insistent about, you know, getting all the information they could get. Like, what are all of the constituent elements that lead to their frustration to get us to, you know, that that final sort of conflict in the interrogation room which was which was horrible well and it, yeah it was i you know and and thinking about the whole idea of the rush that we have also i i think some of that is 
like as I'm thinking about it more, I don't know. I don't know how much of it was the resistance, uh, or sorry, was the allies coming in to liberate? Because I, I feel like a lot of the rush. Because I mean, I suppose what you're talking about specifically with the rush was our our main Nazi who's trying to extract all this information. He's trying to get everything out of these people before the resistance knows that they uh, what they've done and that they've captured these people and that they find out and then everything is changed. All their plans are changed. So that's, I think, why he's very specifically trying to get this news as fast as he can so that he can act on it, figure out where this thing is going down so that he can get it before they change everything. That's, I think, the rush. So there's our ticking clock. And he was he was uh, diabolical. Seemed very chill at first. Turns out, not so chill. He's, well, you know, he's a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Noted. It, it was it was so interesting though. What I what I found so interesting, just you know, shifting conversation to the Nazis for a bit, I found that it was a, a really interesting look at even like the Nazis, the 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 way that the ranks kind of shifted and moved in Nazi circles too, because you know, you have this head of the Nazis who's very much trying to figure out who is part of the resistance. He's got his eyes on Giorgio and Marcello, and he's trying to kind of track them down. And he's working with, I think, the police chief. But then we have, there's this woman spy that he is working with that is basically providing drugs to uh, Marina, who is this Italian woman who works in this nightclub. And using her to get information about these guys. So that was one interesting element. But then you also had this other officer who I found to be such an interesting character because there's this evening when he's drunk and it's like the the Nazi lounge that they all hang out in. He's drunk and he's saying some pretty, um, well, for the Nazis, some pretty terrible things about like how they're proving themselves stronger than us by holding out when they're tortured and not revealing anything. He's talking about how the French did that. And he's saying, this is what will happen if these guys don't talk, they're proving themselves better than us. Yeah. And they call us the master race, like that whole thing. And, you know, his boss, the, the major is getting all upset at him for talking about him like that. But then when we have the final moment of the assassination of the, the priest, he is the one who is there no longer drunk. None of the other, soldiers will actually shoot a priest when when they call fire they all drop their their rifles and shoot into the ground he's the one who walks up with his pistol and shoots the priest in the back of the head and so i just i found the portrayals of the nazis like very interesting in the way that it seems like in their own ways they're all dealing with this complications of the war and uh, the idea of the master race and everything. And it was just, I, I found it to be much more interesting than I remembered or than I was expecting from this film. Yeah, I, I, I was going to call out that sequence too, because I think it's it, it was incredibly powerful, especially because he used the words, what we Germans fail to learn, right? Like, we're not learning through our acts of conquest. We're not learning what it means to be human and how it and, and how the, the impact of freedom on those who aren't free. And I thought that was that was just a wonderful speech coming from that character was was really powerful. And I think having him be the character who picks up the weapon and shoots Don Pietro at the end further illustrates the conflict through this character 
that I have to imagine is applicable to the German ranks writ large, that as you watch resistance grow, it becomes more complicated and more frustrating, you know, to pick up arms and in an act of conquest. And uh, I thought that was incredibly powerful. A great twist. Well, and it's just, I think, smart writing also for the filmmakers to not just paint all the Nazis as just like one big group of terrible people, but to actually give them their own interesting angles and everything that they're still the villains of the film. But at the same time, it makes them so much more interesting to watch and to think about. Yeah, for sure. So you you mentioned the German and we also have uh, Francesco, our principal agent spy goes by two names. We first meet Luigi Ferrari, who is hiding as Giorgio Manfredi. And he's the one who we see scaling at the at the very beginning. He kind of runs out the, the door and kind of goes across the roof to escape as his place is raided. And he goes off to try uh, finding a place to stay. And that is Francesco's place. Of course, Francesco isn't there. And that is why we meet Pina. And uh, yeah, this is where we get uh, Anna Magnani as as Pina, who became very much for a lot of people the heart of this film and the thing that a lot of people remember. I know from the time that I first saw this film in film school, her story is the one that I largely remembered. And that final shot for her, or final moment for her as she's running out into the street after the truck, after Francesco's taken, and then she gets gunned down. My brain has always told me that's the end of the film. So it was a little bit of a surprise when that was the end of part one. And then we had a whole second part of this movie. But I think that just speaks to how iconic that moment is and her story is. As, you know, she is pregnant, uh, she is engaged to marry, and her wedding is the next day, uh, which is, of course, the day that he is taken and she is shot. That's, uh, I mean, it's a powerful performance, and I think a very interesting glimpse into the way people are surviving in this period of time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's shot in such a way that feels, uh, it just feels very natural. And part of it is because of the sort of Rossellini's, uh, you know, intention uh, in making the film, but also under those constraints, like the way they had to shoot this thing gives it a sense of uh, texture and, and tone that feels even as it is deeply aged, black and white, I still feel like I am right there in the street with her as she's being gunned down. Like, I feel like I'm in that crowd of people. I feel like I'm on the, you know, on the tracks, you know, uh, tracking with the camera. I, it is, it's just heartbreaking and, um, and beautiful. And no wonder it's everywhere. No wonder it's everywhere, uh, this shot. Well, I, and I think the shot itself is iconic, but I think a lot of that also comes from, aside from her performance and the power that moment has, but also the fact that this is Rossellini working in this period that, he, I mean, he's kind of like right at the very beginning of kind of creating this neo-realist movement. And a lot of this stemmed from the way that they opted to shoot this right after I mean, this film was shot very shortly after the Nazis had left. I mean, they left June 1944. They started filming this January 1945. The city was still a disaster. Buildings were still in pieces. They used non-actors for a lot of the roles uh, to kind of um, 
give a sense of the realities of everything that was going on here. A lot of these people were here during the time of the occupation. It's a very gritty filmmaking style, handheld looking. It's documentary looking. It's They're filming it on the real locations. With all of that, it's hard to not watch this and feel like we're watching a documentary that is taking place in this place that is just in pieces because of the war. And I think that lends so much to when we're following these stories, like her story in particular, and she's gunned down and you have that, the power of that moment, but also because of this space and everything that we're seeing here. Extraordinary. And and the constraints. I mean, you talk about how it was just, you know, the war was just over. Like the city was still constrained, even though it had been liberated, like to the point where Rossellini says that he went into hiding during the making of this film, that they ran out of film and that like the constraints of making this movie are it, it sound like that's a movie I want to watch in and of itself is the making of Rome Open City, because it sounds like it was every bit as dramatic and challenged uh, because of the context of when they were making it and how they chose to make it and who was involved um, m- makes it just a an incredible, an incredible watch. It it really is. I mean, it's a very powerful story, and and I also think the the style that they chose to use to um, again pulling from that original source material, but to take a number of different stories, and we're following we're following Giorgio, we're following Pina, we're following Marina, we're following some of these Nazis, we're we're following Don uh, Don Pietro. All of these different characters that we kind of are following as they're all trying to sort out, you know, how to uh, on the on the resistance's side, how to take this information that we have, how do we, you know, take what we have and use it to uh, to come out ahead and work on bringing the Nazis down. And then, of course, on the side of the Nazis, how do we kind of get this information, everything? It just there were a lot of pieces that were in place and just. The way that the stories were woven together, I found, lent to that sense of kind of the documentary feel of capturing a picture of this world. Can we, I mean, you're the film school guy. Uh, Can you teach me a little bit about Italian neorealism? Because, Bart, I mean, this movie is widely lauded as, as, you know, one of the pioneer films of Italian neorealism, the Italian neorealist movement. And... I watch this movie and I wonder when you're a pioneer of such a thing as a film movement, uh, was it Rossellini's intention to create something out of making of this movie or did the movement emerge as a result of the constraints they were under while making films at this time in this place? It really kind of emerged because of things going on. Like this, the main studio used in Italy, Cinecittà, had largely been destroyed. Uh, maybe not destroyed, but certainly damaged in a way where nobody could really film there, which pushed the filmmakers out into the streets to make these films. They also didn't have the same budgets, and so they had a lot less money to use. So they weren't necessarily able to build sets and stuff. It was just creating and capturing that realism. And the uh, same thing with using uh, non-professional actors in the performances. Like a lot of the reasons that they were telling these stories is because of everything that had been going on. I think a lot of it also came because everything after the fall of Mussolini led the uh, the Italian filmmakers to want to tell more of these stories of 
the struggles of everyday life and how people were living. I, I think that they recognized that kind of this, these stories of the the poor and the working class, people could connect to that more. And so you end up getting films like this, like Bicycle Thieves, which is another iconic film from the work. I think largely it was through the 40s into the 50s. And R- Rossellini certainly is one who made a good number of these. This this film kicked off a kind of an unofficial trilogy that he made, this Paisan in Germany, Year Zero. And then, of course, you know we've already talked about in our Ingrid Bergman series, Stromboli, which also was part of another uh, trilogy that he did, that Europe 51 and Journey to Italy. Those were all part of this kind of this neorealist uh, movement of kind of capturing authentic lives at the time. And so, yeah, I don't necessarily think they were trying to create a new movement. I just felt, I feel like it was something that came from a trend in the way that they were making films because of the war and the stories people wanted. And hence it, it turned into this type of filmmaking that was uh, much more popular at the time. Well, you can kind of see how people would react to it because it is it's telling such intimate stories that are so closely, I mean, inextricably intertwined with their lives because the people who are watching this movie, you know, were there. They were sitting in there. I don't know how they would watch it, given how close to proximity they were to just destruction in Rome. But it just feels like such a an authentic, such a sort of vulnerable kind of filmmaking that is defined by its constraints. And so it's I mean, I, I really enjoy watching this movie and these movies, the few that we've we've already watched for that experience. I think this movie actually makes for me Stromboli better. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you're getting a, a, a more full sense of the filmmaker and kind of the, the way that he was kind of crafting these stories. And, you know, just talking about his uh, his views on things. I think this film is full of social commentary as far as not just obviously the anti-Nazi feel that they have, but anti-fascist, the resistance fighters, like we really feel a part of the struggle and, and can see why so many people in Italy at the time were were fighting this system because of the struggles they had just getting bread or, you know, just like all of these things and dealing with these curfews and, and everything. It was it was a very difficult time and people were doing what they can to fight and make a better future for themselves and for their children. That's it. I mean, right? Like the human capacity for hope is the bottom line of this movie in spite of everything that we see going on it's not a it's not a good movie for anybody but they all you know all of their stories end in some way or another with that sort of enduring sense of of hope maybe marked by the fact that we already know how it ends up right maybe this movie is better and there's more hope because we have the benefit of 70 80 years of history behind us yeah, but can you imagine being an Italian and seeing this film within a year after having gone through all of this? Like, it, it's just, talk about raw, and, you know, people always nowadays joke about too soon. Yeah. But it's like it, the the idea of jumping into a project like this so quickly afterward to kind of tell a raw cutting story i think is it's it's bold for filmmakers to do but i think that's part of the art that's part of the the magic of cinema of storytelling is is trying to capture that moment and and you know capture and celebrate the lives of these people who were fighting against uh, this oppression 
It is. It's interesting that you bring that up. I was thinking about that this morning as I was reading up on it, because today, as we record this, uh, is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. And I mean, how long did it take for the first movie to come out about 9-11? Do you remember what the first movie was about 9-11? Well, I mean, there was the Nicolas Cage one that Oliver Stone did. What was that called? And when did that come out? Well, there was World Trade Center. World Trade Center is what I'm thinking. And that was... Yeah, that was 2006. Okay, so that was five full years later. Yeah. And uh, United 93, I feel like, was the first one, now that I think about it. That was also 2006. But again, five years. And that felt really raw. I remember when that came out, just a lot of like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to go through this again. It was kind of a difficult story to live through. Wow. Here's one I haven't seen. Yasmin is a 2004 drama directed by Kenneth Glennon, uh, written by Simon Beaufoy. It's uh, set amongst a British-Pakistani community in parts of Keeley before and after the events of the 9-11 attacks. So, they started happening, right, like after after the film, but nothing a year, nothing a year after the attack. And, you know, part of it is making the movie of the, you know, that talks about the 9-11 attacks is a, a feat with today's expectations and technology, a feat. It's a heavy production lift to make a movie like that. And those are not the same constraints that they were working under in 1944, 1945. Yet the sense is there. And I remember when World Trade Center came out thinking Oliver Stone, I was one of those people wondering, is it too soon? Is it too soon? And I don't think there's a a standard, (laughs) but a year, less than a year feels like I... I can relate to that. I can relate to that experience of, of sitting there wondering, what are you doing making a movie about this thing that we just lived through that is so recent? I think about it not in terms of a year ago, but days ago, months ago as an audience member. That's extraordinary. Yeah, very tricky. And it does make you wonder, like, you know, was the Italian audience ready to go jump in and watch this it's it kind of goes to that whole mindset of uh sullivan's travels like does does the audience want to laugh do they want to go and forget their troubles and watch something jovial and lighthearted, or are they ready to take in something um heavier like this clearly with creating this movement there was certainly an audience for these films but it does it does kind of just bring that to mind, you know, the idea of like, what do people want right now? Is this, is this it? Mm-hmm. Wow. We started talking about some of the, uh, the, the people, um, you know, we, we, you mentioned Francesco, certainly the story of Francesco and Giorgio is an interesting one and in kind of their journey to try getting this, the money to the right people, which kind of involves Don Pietro. And then the the part of their story that I find the most interesting is when Marina sees them and pretty much kind of forces herself back into um, Giorgio's life, even though he had kind of said, you know, I don't want anything to do with her anymore, to the point where they were going to go stay somewhere else. And just because she happened to be there... And they and they find out that this person they were going to stay with is uh, like had been captured or something like that. They end up back at Marina's place in a scene that I think is a really interesting one because we have Marina there. We have Pina's sister 
who has left, you know, Pina's house because she didn't think she was being treated well. Uh, that's a whole story in and of itself. But this is where, really where we kind of get a, a sense of who Marina is as a person, paired with this this uh, this struggle that Giorgio and Francesco are having, trying to um, keep the resistance going and everything. How did that scene play for you as far as kind of a scene that really kind of set the stage for their struggles to do the things they needed to, needing places to stay, and then, of course, dealing with people who end up being... Uh, essentially spies. Marina was an interesting character, right? Because she is like, she's a cabaret performer and a prostitute, right? Like she has turned to, I don't don't think she's a prostitute. I think she's just a performer. Oh, I, I got, I walked away thinking she was a, she was a prostitute and uh, you know, that she was really struggling with the, the turn that she had made. Like she is an icon of, taking the turn by necessity. Like, had there been no occupation, had there been no war, she probably would not have turned to some of the other things she did to survive, right? Like, I can imagine she is she's in that space of, of, of like, making the choices that she made to survive. And now she's in it, right? And, and there is very little question that she's going to come out of it. She does have that moment. It's her, right, at the very end, who when they she walks in with the german soldier and and freaks out because she sees what's going on in the room and that that full circle moment from the scene you're talking about leading back to the end of the movie where she is is met with the hot kiss at the end, the end of the wet fist of reality that this is what's really going on you made your choice and there's there are more luxuries associated with what you're doing to the reality of what's happening in in your own fair city is, I, I think, a, a wonderful, not good, but an interesting and evocative turn for that character. It makes her sort of the the avatar for wondering, as an audience member, what would I do if I were presented with the same set of facts? What would I do? How would I treat the people who I walk in and and see that they're working in the spy trade, right? When I've made these other choices, um, I thought that was I, I thought she was fantastic. It was such an interesting story, and you know, I mean, I guess she had my my sense of her is that she had been a prostitute. She's talking. She has that conversation about how do you think I got all of this stuff? It's all the you know I, I get it from all these men in my life because I need that. I want to live well and so she's got a beautiful place and this was an interesting film that where each person kind of had their own little speech that they kind of had a chance to kind of explain their worldview and she's one of them how she kind of came to all of this but really she's kind of i don't know my sense is she's hit this point in the film where she's dancing and she really has kind of fallen for giorgio and thinks that there is something serious there even though he doesn't and that moment kind of breaks her when she realizes he doesn't see it the way she does, I think. And, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons she feels comfortable kind of turning him in. But at the same time, we've learned that she is this person who, as she says, I want the good things in life. And if it means I have to sleep with these men and to get money, then so be it. And in this particular case, she's been getting drugs from Ingrid, the German spy, kind of to the point where... Ingrid has given her enough to become, she's dependent on it and needs it. And that becomes the 
the weak point for Marina when she gives in and gives the information to Ingrid, selling these two out after she overhears them. And it's heartbreaking because that moment when she comes to the club and you just see her drugged out of her mind and you know she is given in she's given all the information to marina or to ingrid who's very happy with her gives her the fur coat gives her a bunch of drugs and she's just like that's kind of the the broken marina that we're looking at at that particular point and it doesn't she doesn't come out of that fog until that final moment when she sees Giorgio dead after being tortured to death right there and the priest is there getting tortured and then to have Ingrid say, yeah, just lock her up and we'll just deal with her later. It's like they don't even view the, them as real people. It's just it's horrifying the way that Marina has become just a, a tool, uh, a, just a, a pawn on the chessboard for Ingrid and her uh, Nazi team to move around as needed in order to get the information they want. It's just it's horrifying. And Marina really in that point that you just talked about. That's her moment of realization, and we see her broken at that point. Yeah, well, and and the fact that we we understand the level of the sort of depravity of uh, Ingrid, the fact that because there's that scene at the end, right? She takes she takes the fur back, right? Yeah. Oh Demonstrating that Ingrid really is the model of Cruella Deville. Like she just is the worst, and she takes the fur and says, "What does she say? Something like, don't worry, I'll use it on this. On, it's for next time. It, yeah. The next time, yeah. Um, which is just." It, it's just horrific knowing just what sort of a a toy Marina is to the the officers kind of manipulating them. And it, it's it's um, it's pretty rough. Yeah. For brutal. Puerto Rino. Very brutal. Don Pietro is really kind of uh, ends up largely becoming the thread through this entire film. He's the one who Giorgio and Francesco end up recruiting to take this money hidden in a book to go. Uh, drop it off to their team who needs it. He's the one who is intended to marry Pina and Francesco the next day. And he is the one who uh, later in the film is trying to help uh, Giorgio and Francesco escape along with this Austrian deserter and, of course, gets caught and ends up in the end witnessing Giorgio getting tortured to death and then gets tortured and killed himself. He kind of becomes our central figure. What do you think of him in the film? Well, I love him. He's first, he's, he starts out just sort of an adorable old priest and, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he wears it well. This, this is Aldo Fabrizi we're talking about. Yeah. He's, I, I would say he's not even roped. Like, he is an enthusiastic participant in the fight for good, right? Like, he's as soon as somebody asks him, there's not a whole lot of convincing they have to do to ask to get Pietro to do something for them, which in this case is get a message to this guy on a rooftop, whistle a happy tune, get some books. He looks in the books. The books are full of currency and take the books back to, you know, enjoying the fight. The thing that I think is so interesting about his character, not just his willingness to do the fight for good as a man of God, which is exactly to to course, like it's totally believable. But at the in the end, the big twist toward torture is the torture for him is watching one of his flock, his sort of adopted flock, be tortured themselves. Like, which is the worst torture? Him being tortured, I would say lightly tortured, like he wasn't tortured as bad as the other guy, but then ultimately just assassinated. He was just killed in a field. And 
using the assassination to further demonstrate the conflict that the German soldiers are under themselves. The fact that they have to have that one soldier has to take up arms because the firing squad refuses to shoot a priest. Right. That is all demonstrates the heroism tale of of Pietro and what he was willing to do and the fact that he was ultimately sort of morally in the right. Yeah, his story is a fascinating one. And it was it ended on such a powerful note, too, because he has that final moment where he is tied to that chair and assassinated. But the other element of that is you have all those young boys show up that we saw the very first time we meet him. Uh, He's kind of doing soccer, uh, you know, coaching slash playing with all the boys. And, you know, the boys are their own little resistance movement themselves that there's a point in the film where they actually bomb something nobody knows who did it because it was the boys and nobody's expecting the children to be actually doing this sort of thing on their own but they did at the very end of the film they all show up outside of the barbed wire fence and they are watching the priest and they're whistling a song to him and then he gets shot and they all bow their heads and they leave arm in arm walking away back into rome but you can't help but feel that as difficult as the film is to watch with everybody getting killed or tortured or their lives destroyed in one way or the other, that with that final shot of those boys, they're walking back into the city that we have through all of this, we have birthed the next generation of fighters here who have seen everything that's going on, who have witnessed the awful elements that have been happening. And this is the group that is going to lead to change and uh, perhaps a stronger Italy in the future. Yeah, because this is the this is the group. So you can you can feel the stamp of history on their psyches. Right. Yeah. Like these these are these are the kids who are going to who are going to make that change. I think that's a great point. Ugh, what a movie. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we certainly get a lot of that with uh, Pina's young son, who is, uh, you know, he, he gets in trouble because he's coming in late, he's missing the curfew and all this sort of stuff. He's an adorable kid, though, and there's, there are a few great scenes that we have between him and Francesco, and I think that's what makes especially that ending all the more poignant, as, uh, you know, earlier in the film— when Francesco is tucking him in, the young kid asks, so tomorrow I can start calling you Papa? And he's like, yeah, I, uh, absolutely. I love having you as my kid. And he's like, I love having you. I can't wait to call you Papa and all that sort of stuff. It's this beautiful moment. And then at the end, as he's leaving, there you just have a shot of the kid as he's just kind of sleeping there. This is after Pina's been killed. And he had like they had all broken free from the truck that had taken them. And he, like, I I don't know, my sense was he must have come in at night when the kid was sleeping to kind of say goodbye before he and these other men all went to try fleeing the country. And, of course, he's the only one who doesn't get caught because he was running behind, but everyone else was on the street. He was kind of tailing behind and sees what's happened, and he ends up, we don't know what happens to him. He's kind of on his own. But at the same time, this kid has lost his dad, and as far as we know, ostensibly his new papa as well. And that's yeah, that's the other tragedy of this story, is like this is a kid whose parents essentially have been taken away from him because of everything going on here. 
awful that that sense of abandonment and and i think that's like we i i mentioned this movie as like a movie about enduring sort of hope ultimately in the thread of all these terrible stories even that thread of abandonment that that kid is lost that becomes the stamp of what is to come of italy during you know the sort of reconstruction period and the post-war sort of rebuilding is i feel like the message here is that through all this loss there will be gain like we'll figure out how to rebuild together those of us who are left uh, i might be over reading into this this movie but it i walk away from it not feeling a sense of of despair well it certainly is despair because of everything that had gone on with this we watch the end of the film with these boys arm in arm mourning the priest as they're leaving returning to this it's an open city, but it's also a very broken city and an empty city in many ways. It has yet to be liberated. We're not at that point yet. And so absolutely, I think there is a lot of heartbreak and tragedy as the film comes to an end. But I just can't help but think that with the with ending on the kids as sad and tragic as it as everything that they've just witnessed, that there is this glimmer of hope because Again, this is that next generation that has witnessed all of this and is going to kind of keep the fight going. Yeah, for sure. It's a powerful film. Very powerful film. So where does it sit for you in the context of this particular award? How how are you thinking about this film? That's a great question because uh, this is really adapted from so many lives that they knew and they brought, you know, a lot of these stories that we're watching here were pulled from these real stories that they had taken to kind of craft this book, Stories of, the, of Yesteryear. It is a really powerful film. And then when you put it up against the rest of our list, and in The King of Siam, The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers, obviously, I think mainly just because of the post-war feel, The Best Years of Our Lives feels like the easiest comparison because we're watching in some way, people trying to piece their lives back together after war. It's just very different when the war is on your doorstep, as it was in this film, as opposed to the best years of our lives, where they are coming home after the war, back to a country that largely hadn't been part of the war. But I feel like those are the, the two that are the strongest in kind of similarity. In the scope of adaptations, since I haven't really read all of these things, I still feel like The Best Years of a Life stands out to me as, for me, the one that hit hit home the strongest for me. But I could also see why uh, certainly somebody who was in Italy at the time watching this film would likely say that, that this film, Rome Open City, is the one that stands out as the strongest because it is just capturing such authenticity. Well, and I, I wonder on that point, like, how how much you know, the best years of our lives doesn't capture that sort of authenticity. To me, it does. To me, it's just so different. And partially because, you know, I have never lived in a war zone. Uh, I've never fought around the world in a world war. I've never lost a limb. Like, those things I can't relate to. I'm just forced to kind of watch. I felt like the story for, for our guys in the best years of our lives, I was able to connect more with those stories. But I wonder if in the annals of history, which of the between the two films, and I'm I'm arguing that the other three, you know, don't have the same sort of historical resonance that these two do, which one is more important in cinema history, right? Best Years of Our Lives versus Rome Open City. I think that's just a, a kind of a very difficult question to answer because I think they're both carrying such different elements. This one, I mean in 
the best years of our lives were watching Frederick March and uh, getting a sense of actors telling this story as opposed to this film where it does feel like we're watching real people it is kind of this documentary feel and so there's a different feel to it you know and yes i mean william wyler as we talked about was using smaller sets to kind of make it feel like not so hollywood and and very real i it's just they're both bringing something so different but at the same time you're right it is all about kind of like how people are surviving after all of this is over and i think they both capture that very strongly i, th- I it's hard to argue which one I think is going to last. I, I I think both of them certainly have the legs. And obviously at this point, they're both two films that people talk about quite a bit. I wonder if the fact that, that Rossellini's film having been filmed in Rome right after all of this had happened. And especially, I mean, we, we talked about in our pre-show chat for our members, iconic shots in film, that shot of Pina running out into the street I mean, it's, you know, that led that whole conversation because of the idea that, you know, whether you had seen this film or not, you've likely seen that if you've seen any Oscar montages of famous films and stuff like that, because that shot is so iconic. And I I wonder if there's this element to moments like that, that, you know, kicking off a whole movement, things like that, that make that one stand out more in film circles as opposed to the best years of our lives. Yeah, that's what I wonder. In terms of like a a popular vote versus an industry vote, it feels like Rome Open City is the one that went on to aspire more great filmmakers, you know, and and again, as you say, kicking off a movement, you know, Rome Open City has industry cred and Best Years of Our Lives is a good and important story. To me, I liked Best Years of Our Lives better. I personally had a had a more enjoyable time learning from that movie, and it surprised me more. But I do think that Rome Open City is I don't necessarily want to say it's a it's a better movie, but it certainly was forced to make a great movie under more significant constraints. And that makes it incredibly important to me. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It is it is a really tricky line, though, when you uh, look at the rest of the race, you know, and this. These five films, you know, talking about the the Oscars in general and like this category, Anna and the King of Siam, for me, is easily the one that I would take off the list. Uh, you know, you've got the best years of our lives. Definitely keep that. Brief Encounter, I'd argue to keep it. I thought it was very strong. I know you might take it off. The Killers, I thought was fantastic. A really interesting adaptation in the scope of adding so much to a story. And this, um, but in the scope of films from 1946 that were eligible for nomination, I mean, do you have others that you would that you would easily handily put on here? That's a bit of a cheat because I've been watching H.P. Lovecraft movies, and I know you've been watching all the other movies released in 1946. <laughs> we're on different projects. <laughs> you have to start. Do you think there are other movies that you would uh, add to this list? Absolutely. It's a Wonderful Life should have been on this list. I mean, that's an easy one oh, to say. Yeah. Put this on the list. It's such a, an incredible film. I, I love it to pieces. It, and it's funny. It's not a film that I think of as an adaptation, but rewatching it for this, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Of course it was. Oh, what about The Yearling? Did we talk? We talked about The Yearling. I would absolutely not put The Yearling on this list. It's, it's a terrible, terrible experience. Why would they do that? It's and it's not that great of a movie. I it boggles my <laughs> mind that that was as popular as it was this year. But looking at stuff like My Darling Clementine, 
definitely put that on the list. Beauty and the Beast, uh, the French film, absolutely. There's a French film called Panic that I just watched that I'd absolutely put on the, the list. Wow, a lot of them. The Big Sleep, maybe. I might put that on the list. It's a it's a certainly an interesting adaptation, very moody film. I have a lot of other films that I need to be watching from this year that would potentially also be eligible to be nominated, but I I still would say so many more that fit on this list over the the uh or over Anne and the King of Siam. That's the one that I would really just take off the list. Throw It's a Wonderful Life on there. You know, I may, my, I don't know, I'm torn. Would I pull Brief Encounter off and put my darling Clementine? Like, that's a line I'm kind of dancing on a little bit. Or maybe Beauty and the Beast. I, I might put that on there um, right away. So uh, it's really tricky. But absolutely, I think there are things that I, I see on this list that um, I would change. I'm right with you. And on your recommendation alone, I would take Brief Encounter off. Like, know that Anna and the King of Siam is gone. Brief Encounter could go. Uh, I could take it or leave it. But you're telling me that there are other great movies that I haven't seen. I would take that recommendation and, and replace one of those with Brief Encounter any day. I just it just wasn't the impact that um, that I had. Beauty and the Beast, I would I would love to see. Um, I, I'll put that on the list right away. I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> well, you should watch it. It's really good. Yeah. All right. I've got like 15 more Lovecraft movies to watch, and then I'll get right on it. There you go. There you go. Are there any tentacles in Beauty and the Beast? Because maybe I could justify it. (laughs) All right. Anything else? I think that's about it, right? I'm good. It's a good series. It is. Absolutely. Well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Teo, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named 
desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right. Uh, how do you do a, a sequel of Rome Open City? Were there, was this a big, a big fodder for sequels and remakes? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there was this unofficial uh, trilogy of films that Rossellini made. This, Paisan, and Germany Year Zero, that is what people call his neorealist trilogy. So very much part of this uh, neorealism movement that was going on, and certainly popular films of his that I, I think people talk about quite a bit. And, you know, Paisan feels, or it sounds like, I haven't yet to watch it, it sounds very much like also kind of like the book, like Stories of Yesteryear, because it is a story that is made up of six stories, and each of them are small stories about the liberation of Italy and kind of the end of World War II. Germany Year Zero that one is uh, the end of this trilogy, and that one is, I, I think, specifically focused on Germany right at the end of the Allies coming in, too. It's all kind of at, right around the same period, but this one focuses on Germany. So, yeah, yeah, films that I definitely want to check out. Uh, but, yeah, I, it's it's I think they're a trilogy in mood and tone, and I think that's why people tie them together. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So we've talked about the Adapted Screenplay Award, but how to do in the rest of the award season? Well, it's funny. It won six awards and it had one other nomination. That one nomination was its nomination for Best Writing Screenplay, which it did lose to the Best Years of Our Lives at the Oscar. The other six it won at the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists. It won Best Film. And Anna Magnani won Best Supporting Actress. At the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Foreign Language Film. At the National Board of Review, Magnani won Best Actress there, um, not even Supporting Actress. And it was one of their top ten films of the year. The big one, though, is at the Cannes Film Festival. It won the grand prize of the festival for feature film. And now for a segment I like to call Andy Ain't Got No Manics. How'd it do at the box office? <laughs> well, this certainly is another tough one. I, you know, I don't know if it's because it's from Italy and in 1946. Likely that's the case. It makes it very difficult to track down this information. What I did find is that it opened September 27th, 1945 over in Italy, where Rome was still a mess after all of this. It started filming in January 45. They wrapped in June 45, and then it was released in September. So very quick turnaround on this. Wow. It, re it released in the U.S. February 25th, 1946, actually with about 15 minutes censored out. I don't know what specifically was censored, but it's interesting that they felt the need to cut some. I'm guessing a lot of the torture. Specifically, God, yeah, that shot. Yeah, when they lit that guy on fire. Yeah, you see his chest burning. Like, geez, that's really oh, horrible God. stuff. Um, this was also banned in several other countries. It looks like it did end up earning about a million domestically or almost $16.7 in today's dollars. I don't know how much it made everywhere else. Uh, well, where it wasn't banned, at least. But that is all that I have. Well, 
uh, I, I'll tell you, I'm I'm on the list for uh, seeing these the the other two movies in this series. It feels like it's disingenuous of me just to watch this one and not follow up with uh, with the other two in the at least in the neo realist uh, trilogy. So count me in for that. This was a this was a interesting experience for sure. This movie, glad it's on the list. Absolutely, no great film. I'm glad to have revisited it. It um, hit me more powerfully this time than it did the first time, even though it had moments that really stuck with me from that first viewing. I also would just say, if you have yet to finish watching the other trilogy that um, that Rossellini did with this following Stromboli, definitely check those other two films out as well. Those are um, really great films um, that he did with Ingrid Bergman, all worth mm-hmm. watching. And that is the end of our screenplay series. That is the end of our screenplay series, our 1947 Academy Awards Best Writing Screenplay. So with that, we will be back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Laszlo Benedict's 1951 film adaptation, Death of a Salesman. Kicking off our next series, the 1952 Academy Awards Best Cinematography Black and White nominees. Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the papers. He's not the finest character that ever was. But he's a human being. And a terrible thing is happening. So attention must be paid. Well, come on, girls. Sit down. We're wasting time. We'll have a big night tonight. Come on, Biff. Gather around. What'll we do? Don't you care about him? What are you talking about? Am I the guy who goes... He doesn't mean anything to you, is that it? Oh, come on, drummer boy, smile. (laughs) From now on, I'll see that you go right through to the buyers. (laughs) She's nothing to me, Biff. I was lonely. You liar! You fake! You phony little fake! going. I'm not writing anymore. The door of your life is wide open. Pat, I'm a dime a dozen and so are you. I'm not a dime a dozen. Let's bitch now. No vengeful, spiteful mutt. Pat, I'm nothing. I'm nothing, Pat. Can't you understand? There's no spite in it anymore. What are you doing? Why is he crying? It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. 
In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I've never seen any adaptation of Death of <gasps> The only, the closest I've ever been is watching the Iranian film The Salesman, in which he is playing the character, but I've never seen it. Oh my God, Andy! I know. Oh, this is so good. I'm so glad to, that you're going to be here for this. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be on the podcast next week. <laughs> All right, Andy Letterbox, what are you going to do? How many stars do you rob from the non-infinite basket of stars, the lifetime basket of stars for this movie that you're taking away from some future film? This is a difficult one to rate for me because I can't help but feel like when I'm watching this, I can tell how important it is to the annals of cinema history. And I really uh, love the film. I found a lot of power in it. I, I have a hard time quite calling it a five-star film, but I feel like it's more than four. So I'm going to land on four and a half, and I think that's where I'm going to sit with this one for now. It could go up on future watches, but I think for now, 4.5 uh, with a heart feels pretty good to me. I'm exactly with you, and because I am no half-stars right, I am four stars and a heart. And it's it, it, it's, it makes me feel a little bad, but not bad enough. It, it's a great film, and it's far better than three stars. Just not quite five stars. That's interesting because I I couldn't tell where you were with this film when we started this conversation. Like I'm like oh, I don't think that he really cared for this one. So I I was kind of guessing you were going to land on three. I landed on four because this movie is like if you separate the historical context and the importance of the movie. If you just don't know anything about it, you don't know that these are like uh, you know non professional actors. You don't know anything. I don't think the movie is as good as a five-star film for me. Like, if you separate all that other stuff. And so, for me, I as a standalone, like, absent the importance of history, it's a four-star movie uh, and with a heart for me. I, I just, like, learning about the movie makes it better. But the, the movie itself, I, I don't know how often I'm going to go back to it. I'm not going to not recommend it. How about that? Well, I know what you think about people who use double negatives. So you we'll do. Just, we'll just let that sit there. <laughs> well, remember, you can visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. You can find me over there at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete over there at Pete Wright. 
And uh, that's it. So what did you think about Rome Open City? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Okay, what did you decide to do here? I decided to go low, right to the bottom of the barrel. Okay, but yours is, I've also seen yours, and it's funny. And mine is a little bit long, so can I Can I read it? I'm oh. stealing it from, Yes. I'm stealing it from, as a suggestion from Brian in the member chat room, which you should all join too. And Take hang it out with Brian. This, right. this one is from the River Jordan in Rome Open City. Five stars. Hot damn, this movie made me hate some Nazis. But Jordan, you say, they're Nazis. That's not hard to do. Okay, let me explain here. The way that Rosalini makes you hate Nazis in Rome, Open City, is to the point of causing a physical reaction. Documentaries on genocide can stir immense anger and loss with their realism in the portrayal of atrocities. The shock comes from needing to accept the actuality of events, even while the mind wants to reject them as false because of the extent of their horror. Rosalini accomplishes similar emotion, but through a basis in melodrama, previously the genre property of pro-fascist filmmakers in Axis-era World War II Italy. Rosalini's brand of melodrama isn't confined to the parlors of the elite, however. It spills into the wrecked and bombed-out streets of this title city, releasing just one year after D-Day. In 1945, Nazis to Europeans and Italians weren't some fanatical baddie from Indiana Jones or the Wolfenstein games. In recent memory, they had torn apart cities, families, and the very foundation in the belief of goodness in the human soul. Rossellini captures the tangibility of this capacity for evil and, in contrast, the pure bravery and heroism of those who stood against them. Rome Open City, after all, begins in pitch dark and ends in dawning light. Ugh! That is a good review. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that made me think of the moment when you have the German uh, captain and he's talking to, I think, the police captain, and you just hear screaming coming from the other room, and the German captain just kind of rolls his eyes and like, ah, oh, these people are just so I know whiny or whatever. I can't remember what he said, but yeah. it's just like, jeez, awful. Uh, just I, I there's a note, one of the comments right after. Just wait till you get to Paisan. Everything is turned up a notch. Nazis can be such party poopers. So <laughs> that uh, definitely makes me want to continue this trilogy. Yes, for sure. All right, what do you got? I went low. I went down, uh, not quite the bottom of the barrel. I didn't go half star. I went one star by Mike, who also, interestingly, gave it a heart with this review. Hmm. Mike, I have no idea what this movie is about because it's in Italian, and I watch TikToks the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you, du Mike. Du dubs not subs, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>